We are on the series of the Beatitudes. We're on the series of what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And the scripture, the Beatitude we're coming to for this today's sermon is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. It says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You ask me, Pastor James, why are we talking about the Sermon on the Mount at this juncture? And I'll tell you, it is because there are people that need us. What do I mean by that? As the scripture reading today tells us that we are called to be the bearer of good news, the bringer of peace. Right now, there's a lot of people who have lost their peace from various reasons. And God knew that it's going to happen. God knew that as the end draws near, that things are going to go crazy. And He's prepared a group of people, and that's you and me, as His community who has been called to bring this message of the gospel, this message of peace to those people out there who at this moment have lost hope, have lost peace, has lost a sense of normalcy, which I think is a good thing. Because normal has not worked for us. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus, 2,000 over years ago, has already established what His kingdom is going to look like. And we have to learn about what it means to be a truly loving community, not to the strangers, but to those around us, whose God has placed in our immediate influence. How do we love our brothers and sisters more? How do we love and live like a kingdom citizen to our family, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our colleagues, to our classmates? To all those people that we interact with, God is calling for His community to bring this gospel to them. Blessed are the pure in heart. You know, many people, whenever they hear this word pure, me too, I think of not being tainted. You know, I I think of how I have to keep myself from certain things. And if you are in a Christian circle, it's uh, purity in terms of your practices. Are you adhering to what the Scripture says? Are you maintaining sexual purity? All these things come to mind whenever we hear this word. And we bring that along with us when we read this Scripture, that blessed are the pure, and, and we think, oh, that's what God is expecting me to do. And you know what's the reaction that all of us make, uh, or the conclusion that we make in the end? I can't do it. I can't be pure. And so God is giving me a, an expectation that I can't meet. And the reaction is, we give up. Well, God must not really mean what He says here. But it's not God doesn't mean what He says, but I think we've misunderstood. But let us look at the word pure. You know, recently during this COVID-19 um, pandemic, especially during the circuit breaker, uh, a lot of people have become bakers. And I've told you that my wife has joined the ranks, joined the ranks. And in fact, this is the exact thing that we just bought recently, is to sift the flour. It's a strange, right? For those who don't bake, I was like, yeah, I don't really bake, but I've heard about it. Is you, you, you buy a pack of flour from, from, the, from, the, from the supermarket, right? And you bring it home, you look at it, it's like, it's like most of the time, most of the time it's like pure white. Right? It's like, it's pure, it, it's gone through the factory, they've done their duties, the machine have... Of course, clearly, of course, if it's not clean and pure, then definitely, like, the, the government's going to catch them, right? It's going to be illegal, and we're going we're gonna, to, like, get diarrhea if we eat it. So it can't be, it's, it's packed, it's sealed, it must be pure. But then you go and you look online, and you look at people who, who, who make stuff, and it goes through this, this process, 
they pour this pure flour over this sifting thing. So it used to be you have to take a sieve and you're going like, to knock it. You're going like, to knock it, knock it, knock it, knock it, and then you, it will go down. But this thing, this new gadget, I'm not promoting this gadget. I don't get paid. But it's, like, it's really helpful, right? You don't even have to shake it. You just, you just grab it and the thing will go inside automatically. Uh, we have not used it yet. We just got it. Uh, and I think it's interesting that this process of sifting, of breaking down the lumps, of, of extracting any leftover impurities is what the word in the scripture actually is very closely related to. The purity that the scripture talks about is being sifted. It's being, like the purity being taken out. And one of the key ideas of this is that purity is maintained or achieved not by the flower themselves shaking themselves and making themselves pure, but it's done by an external force. It is something that is done to the flower that makes it pure. So the idea in the scripture, it says, blessed are the pure, is that you must experience something that is done to you externally. Not something that you do by wanting, by behaving better, or by knowing more. A lot of people talk about purity, they talk about, oh, I need to know what the Bible says more, and if I know more, I will be pure. No such thing. In this idea of purity in the Beatitudes, it's talking about an external force coming in, to sift you, shake you up, put you in a circumstance that after you come up from that, you are pure. So it's something that somebody else has to do for us. You can't do it by yourself. And in fact, the scripture talks about where this purity comes from. See, the, the Pharisee misunderstood this verse uh, and uh, a lot of the, this is actually not a new thing for the Israelites. It's something that the scripture in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, in the Exodus uh, uh, time period talks about. That's why they, they, they know about it. The, the term is not unfamiliar, but they've misunderstood what it actually entails. And so for the, for the, for the Pharisees, it means like, I must be clean. And remember the story of the Good Samaritan where an Israelite, a Jew, was on the roadside. He's been robbed and he's, he's lying there and the, free, the priest and the Levite walks by and says, I can't touch him because he will make me impure. That the idea of purity is so warped by the people back there that they have refused to help somebody who is dying in order to maintain purity. Some of us may have fallen into this trap of keeping ourselves pure in our doctrines, pure in our understanding of God, pure in our relationship. We've excluded everybody else from our lives. So that we'll be not be tainted. It's just like, you know, in the circuit breaker, the safest thing to do, and that's a good thing, it's not a bad thing, safest thing to do is not go, don't go out. Right? That's why we had a circuit breaker, right? Stay at home. Even right now in phase two, it is still better to stay at home. Because if you go out, you have the, the, the chance of rubbing shoulders and meeting somebody who may carry the virus and the virus may pass to you. And that's how the Pharisee and, and the people, uh, people of the law understood this purity. But Jesus came and says, sorry, you've misunderstood it. The way to clean this thing is not to just abstain and keep yourself safe, but that the fact he's just commenting on the fact that you are actually already impure that you have to be cleansed not from the outside in, but from the inside out. That's what's inside of you that needs to be sifted by an external power. 
that's what will make you pure. That's why he says, blessed are the pure in heart. See, we can act as Christians. We can act in ways that may, may look to the world as good. We may be the nicest person in church. Note my focus of in church. You may be the kindest person in church. But are you? Even if you are able to be consistent with your family, with your church friends, and with your workplace and your school, but deep in your heart, you know who you are. And the, the news is God knows who we are. And God says, no, I, I, I don't want just to clean you up externally. I want to clean you up from the inside out. Imagine if Lucas, he goes out and he plays in the mud. That is like... Tiffany will freak out, right? That's not allowed. <laughs> like, he's not allowed to walk on the grass. <laughs> like, like, you know, uh, this is like confession time. Tiffany doesn't know. But sometimes when I bring him out by myself, we're not as clean as she wants us to be. Now we'll walk in the grass. We'll climb on the playground. You know, like the hands dirty, everything. She'll be like freaking out. I'll be like, but, but the thing is, right? If, imagine if Lucas goes out and it rains and it's muddy and he's, he's old enough to play football, right? And he goes and runs in the field and he's playing football and it's all muddy and all dirty. And he actually, while playing and sliding in the football field, he swallows some mud, and that's causing him to be sick, and he comes home, right? And all we do is we give him a shower. All right, Lucas, you're dirty, your shoe's dirty, you got mud on your face, let's go to the bathroom, I'll clean you up, but I don't deal with the, the soil that he swallowed, and it's causing his tummy to, to act up, and it's giving him a bad tummy. That, which one is worse? Dirty outside or dirty inside? Of course, it's best to be clean outside and inside. But you know what we've been doing as Christians? We've been focusing on being clean on the outside, whereas we've swallowed the mud, and the mud is still in our tummy, the germs, the bacteria, everything is still causing us to have a diarrhea, and we're still, we still have not fixed that yet. And we think, oh, okay. But we know we're not. God says, I want you to be pure in your heart, and I want to clean you from the inside out. And why, why does he want us to do that? Because blessed are the pure in heart, for, therefore, and because of that, they shall see God. And you'd be like, God is really mean. God has this like high expectation. It's like, if I don't clean myself up, I'm not worthy to see God. It's like, you know, meeting the Queen of England, you know, you better dress up well. You better, like, put on nice shoes. You better, like, comb your hair and go see her. And we imagine God to be like that, you know, to be this person who's so pure that any virus that we bring along will kill him. He's God. He's not, he's not somebody who's, like, human and dies from virus. In fact, he can tell the virus to go and kill itself and the virus will, will, will commit suicide. But God is, when he says, when we see God, it's not that he expects us to be good enough for him. He's saying, dude, I'm going to make you good enough so you can see me. And the word see here actually represents experience. Experience him. How many of you have gone through your Christian walk with Jesus for years and years and years, and you still say to yourself, man, I don't know God very well. I've not had that experience of who God is. I've not had that life-changing moment. Of course, not everyone will have that life-changing moment. But you feel like you're the same. You've been in church for 20, 30, 40 years, and you're still the same. You've not had that closeness. In fact, you're still at times thinking, God, you there? And that's not because we're not good enough. It's because we're not allowing Him. He has to make us pure 
so that after being purified from the inside out, we can be good enough to see Him. Not because that we will have to act in a certain way, but then we can see clearly. It's like, you know, Joanne will know this, you know, like if my glasses have not been cleaned for 10 years, and I, you know, nowadays the technology is better, like the glasses is anti-fingerprint, anti-smudge, and anti-mud, but it's still gross, right? Especially in Singapore. Singapore is like the killer of good things. Remember, I talk about that. Um, things will grow on it, right? And if I don't ever wash it, don't ever clean it, no matter how good the technology is, like my, my lenses are all fogged up with oil stains and everything, and I just keep wearing it. And then my friend who I, like, comes to me and says, James, do you know how I look like? And I'm like, oh, of course I know, but my glasses are like, like that. I can't really see my friend clearly. I can't experience him in the proper way. You know, if I go out and eat prata with him, man, my hand all prata oil, and then I go smudge my glasses, and so my friend is all like smudgy. And then my friend offers and says, hey, man, James, guess what? I have soap. Can I clean your glasses for you so that you can see me clearly as who I am? And I go, nah, nah, it's, it's fine, man. It's okay. And then we say, you know, bro, I've known you for 10 years. I don't really know how your face looks like, man. And your friend's like, dude, clean your glasses. And I want to clean your glasses for you. That's us and God. When he says being pure, he's saying that let me clean you up. Remove the obstacles, remove the smudges, the oil, the stains, the dirt, the algae that's growing on your glasses so that you can see me so that you can know who I am, so that you can experience me. But he will not force us. He will not grab the glasses off our face and just clean it up. He says, would you be willing to give me your glasses so I can put in this hypersonic soap, something that can clean your glasses? I love that. Whenever I go to the optician, I get my eyes checked and they take my glasses, right, to measure the, 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 the degree and then they do that cleaning for me. Oh, so clean. It's like going to the dentist. No matter how you brush your teeth, it's not going to be the same as going to the dentist. That feeling afterwards when you run your tongue over your teeth, it's like, whoa. You mean my, my teeth have been so, can be so clean? Because they have the tools. doesn't matter if you have an electric toothbrush. Because you can't see everything. And you don't spend enough time brushing your teeth. Man, I'm being like health education. But it's just like you, you need somebody else to help you because there are areas of blindness that you can't see and God saying, I want to help you with that. Would you let me? Would you let me so that you can experience me? You know, if, you, if you're sick and tired of being in church and not experiencing God, I would say that's where we need to go. That's where we need to go. But this, you know, Jesus wasn't talking to, to us living in the 20th century, 21st century, uh, when he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's not preaching to Singaporeans in year 2020 going through a pandemic. He had an audience. And of course, among these audience were his disciples, his newly recruited disciples, and of course, the crowd who he was healing. The Bible tells us that he was healing the sick, uh, opening the eyes of the blind, uh, helping the lame walk. And so these people were following him. Of course, Ben, if somebody just healed you, you will follow him. But among these people, remember, this is not the part of Jesus where people hate him. People don't hate Jesus yet. People just like, they're listening to this really charismatic preacher who is really an awesome guy who is performing miracles. He's at that stage. So everybody's not really sure who Jesus is at this moment, but there are four distinct group of people who are specifically uh, present who are listening to Jesus. So we are not them, but there are principles we can learn from their experience that we need to apply today. That's why it's called the Bible. 
right? It's there because there are eternal principles that's applicable for eternity. But we have to understand first their context of what they go through. So first group that we're very familiar with in the church, we always bring them out and we, we just like, we just point at them and say, don't be like them. And poor guys, man. But do you know like one of the early founding members of the church, of our modern church, of the early ex church that we give so much praise about was from this group of people? A lot of them. A lot of them were Pharisees. So the first group is the other Pharisees that's listening to Jesus. Right, so the Pharisees, who are they? We, we know. We know the word. They are legalists. They adhere to the rules. But as I was researching more about them, there were actually more that I realized about them than I knew about them before. They were actually legalists, but they were also very contextual. They'll apply the spirit of the law. They would look at the law and go, all right, what is, what is it trying to say? How can I apply it? But then they went a bit crazy. They took the principle and applied it to more than what the principle was supposed to do. All right? And one of the problems with these guys is that they keep looking back at their tradition and they try to protect what God has given to them. Is that a bad thing? No. But then when they look back into their history, these Pharisees, they did not look back far enough. They got stuck at the Maccabees period. They got stuck at the kingdoms, the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms, where God was punishing the Israelites for being unfaithful to His law. And they look at that and they were so scared, they took the law and said, how can we apply not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, and they expanded it into this monster that was unrealistic. But if only they look back far enough. And so, but these people were also people who were very flexible, but not in an entirely pleasant way. They're flexible in the application where because they'll apply certain things to a certain group of people, but then they'll excuse it if circumstance shown otherwise. But then people, human beings, right, they misuse this flexibility to justify them not being faithful to the Word of God in the true spirit of the Scripture. For example, one of the things that they'll do is they'll, they'll look at the law and they go, all right, that's, that's something that I should do. I should donate money to the church. But then the law also says I should take care of my parents. But the law says that donating to the church and supporting God's work is more important. And so they donate to the church and they'll not support their parents. That is wrong. Because in Ten Commandments, it says, honor thy father and thy mother. And it says, man, I'm honoring my father and my mother in the utmost sense by sacrificing their needs for the church. Flexible. Rubbish. Then there's the next group who were listening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. These were the Sadducees. These were the rich people. The richer people who were also politicians. They were in power, and in a way, they were the ruling class. So the Jews were not uh, in charge of their own country anymore. The, the Romans came, but they still needed local people to, to be in charge of the local people. So they selected this group, which were the, the heirs or the descendants of the priests, the high priests of the temple. And they called him the Sadducees. And they were the ruling class. And they were the one who was in charge. And, um, but these people will, will be similar to what we call the liberals today. For them, they're like, yeah, I'll follow the rules of God if it benefits me. And they're, 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 but they were interesting. It's not terribly interesting in my research. They were liberals in, in application, but they're very conservative in what they kept. They only followed the first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected everything after that. So they're like, well, 
You know, in, in, in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, there was no mention of resurrection, so there must not be any resurrection. A bit liberal, but a bit crazy. And they go like, oh, the first five doesn't talk about angels, so no, no angels exist. Although in Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the prophets after that, there's mention of experience with angels in the book of Daniel, angel Gabriel comes, and, and, and even in Abraham's story, there's angels, but they, they didn't accept that. I don't know why. So they're liberals in what they adapted, but they kept themselves to the first five of the Bibles. And these are people who I say, but the most important thing for them was how I would advance my life on earth. Because why? Because they did not believe that there's going to be a second coming of Jesus. They did not believe in the future heaven. They think that life on earth is all that we have. So they look forward in how I can have a better life and I'll apply the scripture and whatever benefits me and use it. But they didn't look far enough to the fact that Jesus is coming back and then life on earth will end. So these are conservative in the sense that they kept first five books, but they are conservative only for life on earth. See, you can see how the different groups are not how we stereotype them to be. They are a little bit of both, which is very Jewish, you know. You ask them, is the answer yes or no? They're like, yeah, you're right. right." So everyone has a little, and the honest truth is I think all of us are a little bit like that. I don't like stereotyping people, labeling people, conservative, liberals, traditionalists, progressive. We all have a little bit of everything. We have some things that we're more conservative about and something we're more open-minded about. All of us are growing and, you know, if you look at people, we'll always find the faults of others. And if you look at ourselves, we'll look at how good we are. So let's not do that. Let's not do that. Then there's a third group, the third recognized official group. There's a fourth group, which I'm going to talk about. There's a third group called the Essenes. The Essenes were people who, we have to thank them for one very important thing. They were the people or the keeper or the writer, author, uh, scriber, I would say, of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The fact we have our entire Bible with us today and we have confidence it is the accurate Word of God is because of the Essenes. They hid in mountains and they copied the Bible by hand onto parchments and they kept it in jars and uh, which then show us that the scripture we read in our, uh, uh, we have in our hands today is 99% exactly the same as what they read back 2,000, 4,000 years ago. Confidence is exactly the same. Exactly the same. 99%. That's crazy. Right? So these people, well, who are they? Who are they? These are the pre- preservation, preservationists. Preservationists. They want to keep stuff. Keep stuff. They want to protect stuff. That's why we have the Bible. But one of the side effects of them is they also are only concerned about protecting themselves. So what they do, they don't mingle with people and then they run away into the mountains and hide themselves. They hide themselves there and if a new person wants to join them, you have to be under quarantine for two years before you can be a part of the community. And one of the worst things for me about being a part of this community, you're not really allowed to talk. When you go to a scene gathering, you don't talk. You just hang out and look at each other and nod. And that's all you do because they don't waste energy. And, and they just like depart from people to keep ourselves safe because we don't want to be corrupted by their practices. So I will run away. This is not good. I was listening. And they thought Jesus was one of them because Jesus' predecessor or the person who was opening his path, John the Baptist, felt like one of them. You know, he lived in the wilderness. 
He ate locusts and honey. He wear camel hair. He is weird. And the Essenes are weird. And they're like, he weird. He says somebody's coming and he points to Jesus. Jesus, I think Jesus may be an Essene too. And so they were there. They came out of the caves and they were listening to Jesus. All right? So these people were people who look inward. They look at, they just focus on themselves and what I need to do to keep myself pure, to keep myself uncorrupted, to keep myself in line with God. But one of the problems is they look inward, but they don't look deep enough. They thought that by excluding their physical presence from others, they will be kept aligned with God's requirements. But if they look deep in, enough in their hearts, they'll know that they're not, they'll never be good enough by their own efforts. So we call them the ascetics. So they run away and they hide in the mountains and they leave the mountain and they love that. Some of us are like that. Some of us don't like to mingle with people. Some of us are enjoying the circuit breaker a little bit too much. You know, we don't have to come to church. Yes. No potluck. <laughs> I don't know, man. We need to talk. <laughs> right? like, like some people enjoy this. And it's, it's normal. All of us are different. All of us are different. That's cool. That's cool. But then there's that fourth group of people who are like, man, these guys, they're not officially recognized as a group, but they exist. And in fact, one of Jesus' disciples had this name. Simon the Zealot. Zealot is not his father's name. Zealot was who he is in his practice. The Zealots are activists. They, they believe in the cause, they'll go out and they'll do something about it. And they get really upset when uh, the group that they belong to, the community that they belong to, are not moving, are not doing things. And they're like, let's go, man, let's go, Pastor James, let's go, let's go do something about this issue. They're really excited people. And they go out and they look at what's out there and what's needed to be done. But one of the problems with the zealous is they look outward on the needs of people, but they're not kind enough. If they see somebody who is poor and hungry on the street, they'll be like, oh man, there's so much injustice in that, let me go protest. And they walk away from that poor, hungry person and not give him a bread. You know? Miss the point a little bit? But they say, no, 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 no. My calling is to activate the change. I can't waste time meeting the need of this one person. I gotta change a society, man. Unfortunately, who they are closest related to in a modern era, they're the terrorists, man. They're the terrorists. So there's this four group of people and other common folks who have inclination towards one of these four groups sitting among the crowd who are listening to Jesus. But Jesus says, I'm calling you to be none of any of these four. As he describes, as he preached the Sermon on the Mount, as he talks about his Beatitudes, He's showing people that my followers will have the good aspects of all these four, but they will have none of the bad of these four. But I love how Jesus acts, because Jesus doesn't just preach the sermon, he leaves the act. He leaves it out himself. And the fact is, later on, after we go through this theoretical section of the Sermon on the Mount, you see how Jesus exemplify them. Exemplify them. In fact, you, you, as I said, mentioned earlier, he didn't ostracized the zealot. He took one of them as his disciple, his personal disciple who walked with him for 12 years, or 12 years, for three and a half years. The 12 disciples who walked with him for three and a half years. He accepts them. He doesn't just criticize and judge and says, you're not good enough for my kingdom. He says, welcome. Join my kingdom. Follow me and I'll show you what it really means 
to be a part of my kingdom. And that is why there were a lot of Pharisees that later converted and followed the way. That's what Christianity was called back in uh, the early days. Because Jesus continually talked to them and, and struggled with them, you know. Every comment, every criticism he had of the Pharisee was him trying to reach them. And some did. Some hearts were melted. In fact, we hear the famous one, Nicodemus. He was both a Sadducee and a Pharisee. Crazy, dude. Ruling class, Pharisee in his practice, and then eventually he became a follower of Jesus. So much so that without Nicodemus, probably nobody would have taken down the body of Jesus because guess what? The 12 disciples all left him. It was this one Pharisee that came and took Jesus. So he's calling for Christians to, re- to examine ourselves as we read through the Sermon of the Mount, as we look at the Beatitudes, to look at our lives and see what inclination I have. Am I a Pharisee? Am I a Sadducee? Am I a Essene or am, am I a Zealot? And what are the good things that, that, that's from this tendency? And, and keep, that, keep that. And the bad thing says, God, I want to be pure. I, want, I don't want to be proud and brag about who I am as a Pharisee, Sadducee, Essene or Zealot. I want you, I need you to come and change me to become who you intend for me to be so that I can be the one that go out into the needy, the hopeless, the troubled, and bring them this gospel of peace, goodness, and kindness. So God is asking his followers to be like the Pharisee, to look back at the traditions. Traditions are not bad, but look far enough, look at God's original design and plan that was found in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. God is asking us to look forward, but to look further, to look beyond this earthly life and to look beyond that and to look to Jesus' second coming, to live life on earth, realizing, remembering that life on earth is not the end. Jesus is coming again. And also to look inward into our hearts like the Essenes, to look into the true condition of our hearts, to realize how helpless like babies that we are at purifying ourselves and asking the Holy Spirit to come forth and clean us from the inside out. And Jesus is calling all of us, his followers, to look outward. Look at the needs of those around you. Of course, you need to fight for their needs when the time comes, when it's necessary. But at the same time, you need to look at them with kindness and love to stop from your journey, to stop where you're going. Like the Samaritan, although you are rushing to somewhere for something important, you will take the time to stop and look at this man who's, who's injured, helpless, and need you. And you just stop and share a little bit of that love and kindness that God has shown you. So church, as that, I don't want to just look at you and, and, and just mention you as a, a generic community. All of us need to know each other personally. And the, the truth is, all of us know somebody else personally that needs to hear this message of love, hope, and joy. God is asking you to be that person. But first, let us plead with God to come and purify us from the inside out. Every act starts with me. <laughs>